good afternoon and welcome to Trimodality Therapy for Management of Muscle Invasive Bladder Cancer, presented by the AUA. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so we can continuously improve our programs. We thank you for joining us. Before we get started, I'd like to go over a few items so you know how to participate in today's events. I'd like to extend a special thank you to our course director, Dr. Adam Feldman, for planning an excellent educational course. We thank you for your dedication and commitment to urologic education. Thank you as well to our faculty for their time, talent, and expertise for today's program. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates these other activities, live virtual activities, and enduring materials for a maximum of two AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on the AUA 2021 site immediately following the live program today. As the AUA continues to develop virtual education that meets your needs, we welcome your feedback regarding both the content and format of this activity. Please visit AUA2021.org to complete your evaluations and credit claim. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit AUA2021.org to view Faculty, Education Council, and COI review work group disclosures. The American Urological Association would like to thank AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Merck for their generous support of this educational program. This activity is meant to be educational in nature and in some instance, instances reflects the opinions of the presenters. The information does not guarantee accuracy, accuracy of claims submitted. Please verify the accuracy of individual medical claims submitted claims submitted, and please follow individual insurer's rules. It is now my pleasure to introduce our course director, Dr. Adam Feldman. Dr. Adam Feldman is a urologic oncologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital Department of Urology. He is the director of the Combined Harvard Fellowship Program in Urologic Oncology and director of research for the Department of Urology at MGH. It is now my pleasure to turn the program over to Dr. Feldman. Good afternoon and welcome. Uh, I'd like to thank the AUA for supporting our course and thank Dr. Nitti and the AUA Education Committee for uh, again, uh, supporting our course and, and choosing us for uh, this kickoff weekend, which I know everyone is very excited about. Um, uh, I'd like to uh, begin and uh, I'd like to introduce my colleagues um, and, uh, and, and, and co course faculty, Dr. Jason F. Stathew, who uh, is a professor of radiation oncology at Harvard Medical School uh, and Mass General Hospital. He's the director of the general urinary division in radiation oncology and clinical co-director of the Claire and John Bertucci Center for Genitourinary Cancers uh, Multidisciplinary Clinic at Mass General. Um, 
Dr. Rick Lee is a medical oncologist at uh, the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. He's an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Um, he specializes in genitourinary cancers with a focus on uh, biomarker development, cancer cell metabolism, and clinical trials. So with that, we'd like to get started. getting control of the slides here. There we are. So our agenda today uh, is uh, to really go through the rationale for bladder sparing trimodality therapy. Um, uh, we want to talk about uh, patient selection uh, for uh, either approach, the importance of multidisciplinary care, and how we go about uh, uh, implementing this multidisciplinary care, including maximal resection with TURBT, uh, how we then go forward with chemoradiation, what are the chemotherapy options, uh, what is surveillance and how do we deal with uh, local recurrences within the bladder, and then also discuss quality of life, biomarkers, uh, immunotherapy, and other future directions. So organ conservation uh, in oncology is uh, becoming standard of care in multiple uh, malignancies. In muscle invasive bladder cancer, uh, at this point, radical cystectomy does uh, remain the most commonly offered treatment. Um, and at this point, there are no completed randomized trials comparing bladder uh, preservation TMT to radical cystectomy. And while most patients do well with surgery, it certainly is a major physiologically challenging surgery and can also be life altering for many people. We know that uh, this is really, as urologic oncologists, uh, one of the most, uh, one of the, 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 the biggest surgeries that we do, radical cystectomy, uh, and has a high complication rate and a high readmission rate. And while we're trying to make efforts to minimize those, um, both with ERAS pathways uh, and also with minimally invasive cystectomy, including a robotic-assisted uh, uh, radical cystectomy, we really have not seen a major improvement uh, in the complication rate uh, and readmission rates. And uh, these are data that were from uh, the Memorial Sloan Kettering randomized trial and then have been supported by the more recent RAZOR trial. We know that urinary diversion, surgical urinary diversion, affects renal function long-term uh, and <clears throat> can affect, uh, and, and, and this effect on renal function long-term and uh, declines in, in GFR uh, can have implications uh, in patients, other comorbidities um, and uh, uh, risks going forward in life. So these are really interesting data uh, um, by uh, Dr. Stathew and uh, uh, colleagues uh, looking at the National Cancer Database, and he'll also comment uh, on this study, but really looks, speaks to the um, uh, sometimes undertreatment uh, of patients um, for, who have muscle invasive bladder cancer. So if you look at this uh, bar graph, um, what you see is these are patients who have uh, muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, the orange is surgical uh, cystectomy. Um, and then uh, the blue bars here is really uh, patients who do not have adequate or standard of care therapy. And you can see that as patients get older in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, many patients are not getting standard of care uh, curative intent treatment uh, for their muscle invasive bladder cancer. And this is really an age group uh, in which we can make an enormous impact. So what are the options for muscle invasive bladder cancer? Radical cystectomy. 
um, uh, with or without perioperative chemotherapy, uh, bladder preservation, which is at maximal TUR uh, with chemoradiation, partial cystectomy, uh, or maximal TURBT, plus or minus chemotherapy. So we know that um, uh, in the guidelines, including the AUA guidelines, um, uh, and what I'll show next, the NCCN guidelines, we know that bladder sparing uh, by uh, trimodality therapy or chemoradiation with TURBT is an accepted uh, option for muscle invasive bladder cancer. And in the NCCN guidelines, it's listed as a category one option for both uh, clinical stage uh, T2, uh, also for clinical stage T3 and T4 disease. And also in our patient uh, education literature, both from the AUA or Urology Care Foundation, as well as um, the leading sort of uh, bladder cancer advocacy network, um, these, the, the, our patients are reading about this as an option. So how do we proceed with TMT for patients and how do we identify patients? Urologist plays a critical role in patient selection, uh, also then in TURBT and eventual re-resection, uh, and then as time goes along in repeat cystoscopic evaluation. So how do we select patients? Um, the ideal patient would be those who have a tumor which can be uh, completely and thoroughly resected, um, does not have hydronephrosis, and does not have extensive involvement of carcinoma in situ and does not involve the prostatic urethra. So I list some cautions uh, of tumor factors. And so we think about tumor factors versus patient factors, which we'll get to in a minute. But tumor factors in which are uh, cautions include inability to achieve a complete resection, the presence of hydronephrosis, large tumor birding involving the majority of the bladder. And you can see the images, the CT images on the, on the uh, right, uh, upper part of the screen, which show really someone who's not uh, uh, a candidate, uh, extensive carcinoma in situ, a high-grade tumor to bladder diverticulum, upper tract involvement, prostatic urethral involvement, and extensive bladder neck, really circumferential uh, bladder neck involvement in women. Uh, that being said, not every case needs to be perfect. So some patients can have uh, patients can have some adjacent CIS, which can be ablated transurethrally. Uh, they can have limited satellite tumors, and those can be certainly dealt with uh, transurethrally. And it's not really about the size of the tumor; it's really about the the, the extent of the wall involvement or the stalk. So there are also patient factors. Patients need to be able to tolerate concurrent radiosensitizing chemotherapy, and they can't be a they, they, they um, cannot be a poor candidate for radiation therapy. They should not have had prior pelvic radiation. Uh, uh, we avoid radiation in patients with a history of inflammatory bowel disease, and uh, they shouldn't have poor baseline bowel function and certainly not have poor baseline bladder function. It has to be a bladder worth saving. So uh, multidisciplinary care and coordinated care is critical. Uh, we, there's timing with the resection, chemoradiation, and then repeat evaluations that really must be coordinated uh, in a multidisciplinary fashion. Um, in addition, we communicate with our radiation oncologist the tumor location and the details about TURBT, and this is an example of a bladder map that we'll often use, in addition to having a detailed description in the operative note. That is very important so that the radiation oncologist can design their fields appropriately. And even sometimes Dr. Stathio and I, who share patients, will meet to decide and, and, and go through and, and convey information that I can convey to him uh, about uh, uh, the patient and the tumor anatomy and the bladder anatomy. 
Um, and this just is to, to comment on that it's uh, standard of care become really become standard of care uh, for multidisciplinary care uh, in in bladder cancer in addition to really becoming a standard of care in, in, in the majority of GU oncology. Maximal resection is key to uh, having a successful outcome. Uh, uh, this is, uh, these are our data that just show that a complete TURBT uh, leads to um, uh, better uh, outcomes in patients, and this has been confirmed by other centers. So how do we do that? This is a very much of a surgical approach, and I want to make sure that everybody on the call knows that um, the, the goal of TURBT is to really to remove all visible tumor, not to just prove muscle invasion. Um, uh, always I do a bimanual exam to assess for fixation and duration uh, uh, and assess the mass pre and post TUR. Um, uh, the technical considerations that we want to think about, uh, general anesthesia, sometimes you may need neuromuscular blockade to prevent obturator spasm. Uh, I do, especially for re-resection, prefer bipolar resection. I think you can get better preservation of the tissue, and that's been demonstrated uh, um, in the literature. Um, you can use uh, uh, other aids, such as NBI uh, or blue light, uh, as an option to aid in the resection, uh, although that's not certainly not um, um, uh, uh, absolute. Uh, and, off, and, and, and manual suprapubic pressure uh, is key in any uh, resection uh, to really manipulate the tumor in the bladder wall. So partial distension of the bladder can avoid uh, wall thinning uh, and risk of perforation. These are just uh, sort of pearls of TURBT. Certainly beware of thinner bladder walls, especially in women and, and elderly women. Uh, and when we think about TURBT, it's an aggressive complete resection. Uh, you want to resect all visible tumor, and it's a deep resection uh, into the muscular wall. Uh, and sometimes uh, in spots uh, down to fat, you may resect into the bladder neck and the prostatic urethra if needed. Um, and you may resect the ureteral orifice. And if you do resect the ureteral orifice, uh, I would advise you uh, to leave a stent uh, through uh, chemoradiation. Always perform a repeat TURBT in cases of muscle invasive bladder cancer that have been resected elsewhere. You need to be comfortable that all of the tumor is resected, and you need to be comfortable that there's nothing that's uh, uh, remaining. Uh, and fulgurate any associated field change. So after TUR, excuse me, after chemo RT, uh, we then re. Uh, assess the site cystoscopically uh, with a biopsy, and it's a transurethral resection biopsy to assess the muscle underneath the mucosa. Uh, this is your opportunity to really assure that there's no residual disease, um, and I don't always re-resect the entire site. I'd like to welcome my colleague and introduce Dr. Jason Epstathew, uh, who now will take over uh, and speak about uh, how we move forward with chemoradiation. Dr. Epstathew, thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Adam, and thank you to the AUA for organizing uh, this wonderful course. Um, just getting control of the slides here. There we go. All right. Well, Adam has really kicked this off really well, and I now just wanted to kind of describe um, kind of the paradigm for chemoradiation. Uh, there are many ways that chemoradiation can be done. Certainly, it starts with a maximal TURBT as Dr. Feldman has very nicely described. And you can do split course radiation, you can do single course radiation. I would argue that more and more these days we are doing single course radiation, not BID radiation with a treatment break, but single course radiation to full dose, which is typically in the 55 to 65 gray range. 
Following completion of that, uh, a cystoscopic reassessment of treatment response with a repeat biopsy. If the patient is a complete responder, they go on to lifelong cystoscopic surveillance. And if ever there's a muscle invasive recurrence in the future, a prompt and early cystectomy is recommended. If, however, they are not a complete responder, um, they may be coming to a salvage cystectomy earlier. Um, and so this is sort of the general paradigm. And as you can see, the U's represent the urologist, um, and the R and the M represents the radiation oncologist and medical oncologist. My point of uh, putting them on this slide is to, to highlight that the urologist remains the quarterback of bladder preservation involved at multiple stages, the maximal TOR, the cystoscopic treatment res uh, assessment response, lifelong cystoscopic surveillance, uh, and in about 10 to 15% of patients, the need for a salvage cystectomy. Um, the uh, approach uh, of bladder conservation has really evolved over the years and, and over the decades. Uh, and, you know, really uh, nowadays we have been playing with more enhanced radiation sensitization with different concurrent chemotherapy regimens. We've also looked at issues of uh, uh, adding adjuvant chemotherapy. There's also uh, interest in neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And really uh, nowadays in 2021, there, there is the, the evaluation of the role of immunotherapy with chemoradiation, which we'll get back uh, to later in, in uh, this course. Um, I'm just going to show some of the longer-term results from our institution here at MGH, which mirror very much what's been seen in the cooperative group experience. But this is uh, an experience that dates back a number of decades. And in you know approximately 500 patients with long-term follow-up, you can see uh, a few things. One, uh, at, at MGH, about two-thirds of our patients have had clinical T2 disease, while a third of patients have had more advanced T-stage disease. There is some hydronephrosis and some uh, tumor-associated carcinoma in situ that is represented in the series as well. Um, you know, the, uh, a visibly complete TRBT has been achieved by our excellent urologic surgeons 70% uh, uh, of the time. That again is dating back to the 1980s. If you look at more contemporary numbers, uh, that, that rate is quite a bit higher. And again, dating back over the decades, our complete response to chemoradiation has been about 75%. Again, you'll see on um, uh, this slide here that that rate has really been improving over time. Uh, nowadays, we expect complete response rates to chemoradiation of about 85 to 90% of the time. Uh, part of that, uh, yes, is due to uh, better selection of patients or choosing, quote unquote, the more ideal patients for uh, chemoradiation, T2s, less hydro, more complete TURVTs being performed. Um, and also part of that, I would argue, is that the chemotherapy and the radiation therapy have gotten better over time. Uh, these are just curves showing our overall and disease-specific survival rates. Uh, that represent the entire cohort, again, going back uh, decades. And you can see the five and 10-year disease-specific uh, survival rates in the 60 to 66% range. Um, if you look at just T2s, those five and 10-year disease-specific uh, survival rates are, are better than the more advanced tumors, as you would expect. I mean, you would see similar uh, um, uh, improved results in T2 versus T3, T4 in, in surgical series as well. 
Uh, and if you look at our contemporary results, this is really important. The five-year disease-specific survival rate, if you look at patients treated since 2005 at MGH, is about 84%. Um, and yes, those are generally selected populations, but this would uh, compare favorably, I think, to even uh, very select favorable surgical cystectomy series. In addition, uh, our need for salvage cystectomy has plummeted over the years and the decades. Now, nowadays, I think you can expect salvage cystectomy rates that being needed about 10 to 15% of the time. We'll get more to that. Dr. Feldman will address that further in the course as well. Um, yeah, patient selection is important, certainly. Here are the factors that are associated with um, uh, uh, better, better outcomes. Um, you know, T stage, a complete response to chemoradiation, the lack of hydronephrosis, the lack of CIS, and the ability to achieve a complete TURBT are all factors associated with improved survival outcomes. Uh, and, and that's important to know. So the ideal patient would have these features. That doesn't mean you can't do chemoradiation in, in, in patients that don't have all of them. It just means you have to counsel and, and, and adjust your, your expectations based on, on these types of factors. And of course, similar types of things would apply to surgical counseling as well. We all know when comparing radiation to surgical series, uh, you know, there, there, are, there are issues in, in comparing that. One is the, the issue of selection. Uh, the other is that there's clinical pathologic uh, stage discordance and T-stage discrepancy. So we know that about 46% of the time, a clinical T2 will be upstaged at time of cystectomy. So that has to be accounted for uh, as well. If we look at, um, you know, uh, big radical cystectomy series, Again, I would argue that the, most of the patients that have been going for chemoradiation are represented on this orange and green line. Uh, you know, and again, you can see long-term disease-specific survival rates in the 60 to 66% range, very similar to what we've seen after uh, chemoradiation series. Um, this is just another uh, big series from USC and the University of Bern, uh, again, showing, you know, similar kind of uh, disease-specific survival rates uh, over the years. Here um, on this next slide, you'll see there's, there's a host of population-based studies out there, but real caution is needed in interpreting this. I'm showing here one example that suggested that radical cystectomy is better than trimodality therapy in terms of overall cancer-specific survival. But if you actually look at the details of the study, patients unfit for surgery were not excluded. And of course, those are the ones getting radiation-based therapy. The median number of radiation fractions was 18, while in the U.S., we typically would need more than 30 fractions to be considered definitive therapy. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, there, there's just a lot of confounding misclassification and selection bias that goes into studies such as this. I mean, similarly, we can look at other large databases, such as from the VA, uh, the Veterans Affairs, and uh, here, you know, they had more stringent definitions. Trimodal therapy had to have, you know, NCCN uh, sort of uh, guideline approved radiosensitizing chemo with it. And in, in series like this from the VA, you can see very similar outcomes between trimodal therapy and radical cystectomy. The, the best comparative data um, probably comes from Toronto where they instituted a bladder cancer multidisciplinary clinic uh, back in 2008, and patients went for either surgery or trimodal therapy, and they did propensity score matching, trying to match for all known variables that might affect outcomes. And as you can see here, 
uh, you know, with good longer-term follow-up, there was no difference between overall survival or disease-specific survival between TMT and radical cystectomy cohorts. I would argue that uh, short of a randomized trial, which unfortunately we don't have, there was a trial attempted in the UK called the SPARE trial that, effect, uh, that, that um, uh, was unsuccessful in accruing. So short of that, I would argue that this is probably the best data. We're currently updating this data with our MGH cohort and other large surgical series from USC uh, and doing large uh, further com similar comparative data. Some will say, well, what if there is a urothelial carcinoma, but with squamous differentiation, does that fare differently with trimodality therapy? And the answer is, at least from uh, data from our institution, that that doesn't really change uh, survival outcomes. Uh, that being said, I would say most of this was, was squamous differentiation. So, um, uh, you know, urothelial carcinoma with squamous differentiation compared to pure urothelial carcinoma. Uh, there were some uh, patients represented in this series with micropapillary disease and other higher grade disease. I, I would say that there wasn't much representation of small cell, for example. So it doesn't necessarily apply to all histologic variants, but certainly those with squamous differentiation, I don't think we see different outcomes. Um, as we saw already from Dr. Feldman, cystectomy is not being performed in about 50% of patients uh, nationally. You know, I mean, the age of diagnosis is typically early 70s, um, and uh, you know, about 50% of patients uh, over the age of 70 with muscle invasive disease are not getting a cystectomy. So it's a huge unmet need, and trimodality therapy can fill this gap. And currently, while I, I really sense nationally that there's increasing acceptance and utilization of trimodality therapy, uh, we can still do better. Uh, what about age? Well, we've stratified our results by less than 75 versus greater than 75. And long story short, uh, both the younger and the older populations seem to do equally well with chemoradiation. So you can offer this even to the elderly, certainly. Um, uh, this uh, uh, trimodality therapy remains a good option. Uh, and the, on this slide, I just wanted to highlight some of the real advances that have been happening with radiation. Again, I, I mentioned this earlier. I think most of us are doing daily radiation, not BID. Most of us have omitted that mid-treatment break, okay, for cystoscopic evaluation. And we, instead we've gone to full uh, dose uh, chemoradiation and then the cystoscopic reevaluation. There's, there's a lot of debate about the field of radiation. Should we treat the pelvic nodes or not? Is bladder only radiation uh, okay as has been done in the UK? Or can we even focus our radiation to a smaller field and just treat the area of the tumor? What, what about when incorporating immunotherapy? Um, in radiation, there's always the question, do we treat the tumor in the bladder when the bladder is empty or the bladder is full? These are areas of ongoing debate. Um, and then, you know, there's the option of hyperfractionated radiation. There's uh, some data that's emerged suggesting that 55 gray in 20 fractions is not inferior to the more conventional 64 gray in 32 fractions. And so a moderate hyperfractionated uh, dose is another option, though I would, I would say that that data really applies to <clears throat> when you're only uh, treating the bladder alone and certainly doesn't apply to when you're adding immunotherapy. Um, and, and, you know, te radiation technologies have advanced. We use now image-guided radiation. That becomes an option, and that might even facilitate increasing the tumor dose, so allowing for dose escalation. And on the bottom right-hand panel, you see some images of variable bladder filling uh, depending on the day and how full the bladder was. 
And obviously one has to adjust the radiation to that. So there's, there's really a, a, a lot of work happening in that area of image guided radiation. And so with that, I would like to pass the baton on to our medical oncology colleague, Dr. Rick Lee, um, uh, to discuss chemotherapy. Terrific. Thanks so much for the introduction and thank you to the AUA and to my uh, co-faculty for this terrific uh, educational course. So it's my pleasure to talk about chemotherapy and, this, it, and its role in this uh, treatment modality. Just taking control. So I'll, I'll just start uh, by saying that um, concurrent chemotherapy is really important to the success um, of this, of TMT. It's really important and it's very rare that a patient uh, cannot actually get chemo with radiation therapy. So even as, as uh, Dr. Staffy was describing, the elderly patients, the frail patients, um, they can still be candidates to receive uh, chemotherapy along with the radiation. There are a few roles for chemotherapy uh, with TMT that I'm going to discuss. Uh, they include the concurrent use of chemotherapy, uh, a role for adjuvant chemotherapy, and then neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I'll say that there are a number of active radiosensitizing drugs. They are listed here. It says platin, paclitaxel. You'll see a lot of use of 5 few and mitomycin C as well as gemcitabine. Uh, the last is the carbogen nicotinamide, a combination of vitamin B3 and uh, carbon dioxide and, and, and oxygen as hypoxia modifiers. Um, but when we consider which chemotherapy agent should we choose, this is just a single in institution experience that just highlights that there's the benefit of adding chemotherapy along with radiation. As you can see here, the complete response rate on the right for radiation therapy alone is 57%. And this sort of hints at the idea that adding carboplatin and then cisplatin and then the combination of 5 and cisplatin are associated with higher rates of complete response along with radiation. So for this uh, portion of the talk, I'm going to highlight a few, cover a few highlighted studies that really sort of get us to our current standards. These include the BC 2001 study, several RTOG studies, and the University of Michigan studies, and I'm going to cover these in greater detail. So first, looking at the BC 2001 study, uh, this is a phase three chemoradiation versus radiation study in muscle invasive bladder cancer. It had 360 patients. It was published uh, in 2012. Uh, in this case, patients uh, received uh, radiation with or without um, the chemotherapy mitomycin C and 5-FU. Uh, important uh, to note here that the median follow-up is 69.9 months. Uh, the mitomycin C and the 5-FU, the doses are provided, as you can see. I guess one potential disadvantage is the requirement for a portacath. The primary endpoint was survival free of local regional disease with secondary endpoints of overall survival and toxicity. This next slide looks at the overall survival. So if you look at chemoradiotherapy as compared to radiotherapy alone, in the blue curve is chemoradiation, and you can see that there may be some improvement in overall survival. Uh, I failed to mention that 32.8% that, uh, of the patients also received neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and we'll get back to that later. So, uh, so overall survival generally looks similar, but if you look at the other uh, at the primary endpoints of 
really survival-free of local regional disease. So these slides look at disease-free survival. So local regional disease-free on the left and invasive local regional disease-free on the right. And again, chemoradiotherapy is in blue and radiation therapy is in red. And you can see that the curves uh, quite clearly separate, uh, indicating a benefit to chemotherapy concurrent with radiation. Turning to the RTOG 0233 study, this was a randomized phase two study um, that looked at patients, uh, 93 patients, and they were randomized to receive twice daily radiation in either 5-FU and cisplatin or paclitaxel and cisplatin. So the regimen with 5-FU and cisplatin requires the use of a porticath because of, uh, because of the continuous infusion 5-FU, or as the paclitaxel cisplatin regimen does not. And all of these patients uh, received adjuvant chemotherapy. The primary endpoints of this trial were the rate of treatment completion and tolerability. And what you can see is that in terms of the overall survival, which is this next slide, you can see that the patients in the paclitaxel group in red and the 5-FU group in blue, uh, the overall survival uh, curves were overlapping. And if you look at survival with an intact bladder, so ability to maintain their bladders, uh, these curves are also overlapping, suggesting that um, either one of these uh, chemoradiation regimens is reasonable to choose. These tables covered the adverse events, and I will just highlight for you that in the boxes are grade three and grade four events. And these really indicate the toxicity between the two arms is really quite comparable and, and really quite low. Turning next to our use of gemcitabine as a radiation sensitizer, it really is born from these uh, University of Michigan studies that looked at uh, phase, the, these phase one studies that looked at daily radiation, so not twice daily radiation, but daily radiation, but twice weekly gemcitabine. Uh, and here they looked at 23 evaluable patients. This was, uh, uh, this was a phase one study, again, to find the, uh, the optimal dose. All patients received radiation, and then they received twice weekly gemcitabine. At a median follow-up of 5.6 years, here you can see their number of different gemcitabine doses that were used. And there were a number of dose-limiting toxicities that, that occurred um, at 30 and 33 megs per meter squared. So 27 milligrams per meter squared became the maximum tolerated dose. And here you can see in these curves, this, these look at the efficacy of this uh, chemoradiation uh, strategy in terms of disease uh, specific survival and overall survival, as well as ability to uh, maintain an intact bladder. Based on the prior studies I just described to you, the RTOG then embarked on a randomized phase two study uh, looking at patients getting either the Michigan style daily radiation with twice weekly gemcitabine or the RTOG uh, twice daily radiation with 5-FU and cisplatin. And so you can again see that uh, the twice daily radiation is a little bit more um, uh, intensive in terms of uh, coordination of care. Patients would need a porticath. The Michigan uh, regimen does not inc incorporate a treatment break. It's, it's definitive radiation. It does not need a, a, a port. And all patients were meant to receive the adjuvant chemotherapy. And, and the idea here was that if either arm has at least 75% uh, distant metastasis-free survival at three years, then that treatment would appear to be promising. So this is the um, 
the primary endpoint uh, for the RTOG study was distant metastasis-free survival. Um, this is a reported a median follow-up of 5.1 years. And I think you can see here that metastasis-free survival, uh, so was really very similar between the two groups, getting the twice daily radiation with 5 of cisplatin or the daily radiation with gemcitabine at 78% and 84%. So really quite similar. When they looked at the toxicity, um, which is the next slide, uh, I think what you can take away from this slide, uh, again, uh, five of cisplatin on the left and gemcitabine daily radiation on the right. Uh, the takeaway here is that the toxicity was that both regimens were really, really quite well tolerated. Looking at the complete response rate, I, I what you can see here in the complete response uh, row, uh, the, that both regimens uh, had a high complete response rate. 88% uh, and 76%. And then if you look at the bladder intact, distant metastasis-free survival, so patients who've maintained their bladder, uh, that what you can see is that the bladder preservation rates of 67%, and I'm circling them here, 67% for the 5 of cisplatin and 72% for the gemcitabine regimen were, were both high and looked equivalent. So I think what this study really showed us is that gemcitabine is a reasonable alternative to cisplatin and 5-FU, especially with patients who have renal function that precludes the use of cisplatin, or if they have hearing loss that precludes the use of cisplatin. This really also pointed, to, pointed us that uh, daily radiation is also really quite reasonable and hopefully can allow for wider adoption of trimodality therapy. So what, what about the value of adjuvant chemotherapy? I've just described to you the various regimens for concurrent chemotherapy. So what's the value of adjuvant chemotherapy? And there really is no level one evidence for adjuvant chemotherapy post-cystectomy. Uh, we have evaluated a number of trials uh, that have been run through the RTOG, NRG, and, and uh, at, at MGH. And the adjuvant chemotherapy is associated with disease-specific survival only in univariate uh, anal analyses. What about neoadjuvant chemotherapy? And one of the early RTOG studies was 8903. These are patients, 123 patients who received uh, two cycles of MCV, methotrexate, cisplatin, vinblastine, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and, and then received radiation with uh, cisplatin as the radiation sensitizer. And the real result here was that there was no difference in overall survival uh, or disease-free survival, metastasis-free survival uh, with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So this was not further pursued. When we look at our data um, in aggregate with other, uh, in terms of other trials, uh, our data for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, these are the red curves, patients who received neoadjuvant chemotherapy compared with the blue curve, patients who did not receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy, really showed overlapping and therefore similar uh, results in terms of overall survival, disease-free survival, and then the cumulative incidence of distant metastasis. And I think this is really quite consistent uh, with other large studies that included neoadjuvant chemotherapy that didn't show a clear benefit, including the BC2001 study. And this is going to be my final slide uh, that will just describe, well, well, so what do we do in practice? How do we incorporate all of this information that, that I've been describing to you? And I, I would say that in general, we don't use new adjuvant chemotherapy for patients with trimodality therapy. I think we, 
as we've done for uh, on a case by case basis, there are some patients who've had bulky lymphadenopathy where we've first given neoadjuvant chemotherapy and saw, seen um, a disease response for the for the lymph nodes and then moved on to trimodality therapy. So um, that is a circumstance that, that we've certainly um, uh, considered neoadjuvant chemotherapy for patients or cystectomy candidates. <clears throat> if they're cisplatin eligible. One regimen may be the twice daily radiation cisplatin 5-FU. Of course, as I've described, this is an intensive uh, treatment that requires a close coordination between uh, our urologists, radiation oncologists, and medical oncologists. Uh, and so, so for some, that's not a very uh, feasible approach. Uh, but for patients who are cisplatin ineligible or don't want the twice daily radiation, then the regimens that we consider are daily radiation, the definitive course of daily radiation with 5-FU mitomycin C or the twice-weekly uh, gemcitabine. Now, for patients who are not cystectomy candidates, if they are, um, if they're, if a portacath is reasonable for them, then we'll go with the daily radiation and 5-FU mitomycin C. Uh, but if not, then we'll go with the daily radiation and twice-weekly gemcitabine. So that with that, I'll conclude this portion. and move on to Dr. Feldman. Wonderful. Rick, thank you so much. That was outstanding. Just gonna get control of the slides here. And then again. There we go. So um, surveillance, uh, after trimodality therapy, and I, I should say surveillance after chemoradiation is critical. And uh, it's really, you know, where the urologist continues to have a very important role in management of these patients. Um, on the right-hand side of the screen, you can just see an image of a, of a, of a scar. And this is a video just of, of uh, um, a patient's bladder after trimodality therapy. Um, and uh, we um, I have noted at the second bullet point uh, that at 17 weeks post-consolidation, uh, cystoscopy and biopsy is performed under anesthesia. I'll just clarify that um, if, as uh, uh, Dr. Stathew commented that really most of our patients now go straight through um, a single course and we then perform cystoscopy and a TUR biopsy uh, really at two to three months. Uh, expect that there's gonna be some persistent escar and ulceration at the tumor site that, that we know. Uh, you may see some, uh, some mild radiation change that, um, that, that highlight, is highlighted on the video. Um, and um, what you do is when you assess these patients, uh, you wanna debris the fibrinous tissue with the cold loop and then uh, biopsy the viable uh, muscularis in the bladder wall. Um, the, historically, we had done a additional cystoscopy and biopsy at three months uh, and then convert to office cystoscopy after the second negative biopsy. Uh, I would just say that I think most people who do a lot of this and including us, we've um, <clears throat> often uh, omitted that second biopsy if the initial biopsy uh, is negative and um, 
uh, and uh, there's no evidence of any disease uh, after that. So the surveillance schedule is really similar to, um, to, to high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Um, it's every three, really every three to four months of the first uh, two years, every six months until five years, and then annually for life. These patients are always uh, at risk. And always important also not to forget the upper tracts uh, when doing uh, CT scans. Uh, so uh, in patients who have renal function to accept I, um, IV contrast, we do try to get CT urograms to assess the upper tracts, again, just as you would in somebody with high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, and we use uh, voided urine cytology as well. So what about radiation cystitis? People always ask about that. Uh, the majority really are clinically insignificant. Um, uh, there is the occasional need for intervention. Uh, out of 500 patients in our experience, two have needed cystectomy uh, for end-stage bladder. So really most patients do quite well. Um, now, how about managing uh, uh, local recurrence? And, and, and let's start with the risk of local recurrences. So the risk of local recurrence at 10 years, this is a pooled analysis from the RTOG published in 2014. And at 10 years, um, the risk of local recurrence was 36% um, of the 36% uh, risk of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer recurrences and a 14% uh, of the patients had a muscle invasive recurrence. What about some individual centers uh, in, 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 in their experience? These are our um, uh, experiences. These are a little earlier in our, in our uh, experience that's published in 2001. Uh, <clears throat> and patients who had uh, been had achieved a complete response, 26% had non-muscle invasive recurrences and 13% had an invasive recurrence. And what we found, if you look at the table in the upper right-hand corner, uh, is that about 60% of these non-muscle invasive recurrences uh, were carcinoma in situ and 28% were T1. Um, and the median time to recurrence was 2.1 years. Uh, the experience in Germany uh, was similar. Uh, interesting, they're, they're, they're um, in complete responders. Their uh, risk of a muscle invasive relapse was 17%, and the risk of a non muscle invasive uh, uh, recurrence was 17%. Um, and their median time to a non-muscle invasive recurrence was 1.3 years. Interestingly, there's just a, a little bit of a typo here. Of the, of the 323 patients um, who did not have a muscle invasive relapse, in other words, the, the, the had the bladder relapse, no bladder relapse, or superficial relapse, interestingly, 30% of the, 37% of those uh, original tumors were T1 and 41% were, were low grade. And so th this group is a little bit different than uh, our group and, and those in the RTOG in that they did treat patients who had uh, low grade and T1 disease uh, initially. Uh, and that may also uh, uh, contribute to the lower uh, non-muscle invasive uh, uh, relapse. Right. Uh, at Princess Margaret Hospital, uh, also there was a, a somewhat, somewhat similar uh, re local relapse rates of 26% for invasive disease, 16% for non-muscle invasive. And interestingly, what uh, they found was that the local recurrence rate uh, was greater with larger tumors, so tumors that were um, uh, uh, that were uh, over two centimeters, and also those with associated carcinoma in situ. And sorry, in the title, that CIS is was was cut off mistakenly, but it's really it was it was greater in those with patients who had larger tumors and those with the associated CIS. So how do we treat those recurrences? 
Um, this, these are our data that were published a few years back. Um, <clears throat> the, again, we saw that there was 25% of patients had non-muscle invasive bladder cancer recurrences. And we also, similar, um, similar to the Princess Margaret experience, showed that uh, in the primary tumor, if there was CIS, there was a higher risk of having a local recurrence. And that goes along with what we know uh, about non-muscle invasive disease. Uh, eight of those patients had immediate cystectomy. And of those uh, who had TURBT, 12% ultimately progressed to muscle invasive uh, disease, 24% ultimately ended up having a salvage cystectomy. How did we treat them? Uh, uh, 39 patients um, had uh, BCG post-TURBT. 74% of those patients completed BCG induction. So really, you know, the majority of patients completed BCG induction. 36% received uh, maintenance BCG. 49% uh, reported some level of BCG toxicity. And at three years, the recurrence-free survival was 59%. Um, and the progression-free survival was 63%. And what we can see is that those patients who uh, had no recurrence overall, those uh, patients who had no recurrence versus those who had a non muscle invasive um, uh, recurrence had really similar overall survival, um, but uh, uh, slightly um, lower um, uh, uh, disease-specific survival in the uh, those who had a recurrence. So what are the take-home messages uh, for uh, non-invasive recurrences? Most non-invasive recurrences can be managed similarly to de novo non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, and most patients tolerate intravesical therapies really quite well. Um, however, patients who have T1 disease, larger tumors, carcinoma in situ, or LVI, um, they can be managed as non-muscle invasive disease, but you really do want to discuss the option of uh, salvage cystectomy up front, um, uh, and, and that should certainly be discussed as an option with patients. So what about those who need a salvage cystectomy and have a muscle invasive bladder cancer recurrence? Um, uh, <clears throat> this is just uh, uh, data that um, uh, Dr. Stathu had uh, uh, discussed. These are our, our experience and the need for overall need for uh, salvage cystectomy was 29% at five years and 31% uh, at 10 years. Um, and uh, at five and 10 years survival, excuse me, five and 10 years survival after salvage cystectomy for recurrent disease was 64 and 55%. So not too different than um, de novo disease. Um, and, and the salvage cystectomy rates in our series really are very similar to those seen uh, in, in other series. And um, uh, uh, in, in the Toronto series here, we see uh, that the rate uh, is about 10.7% uh, risk of needing a salvage cystectomy. Uh, and then also we see uh, similar rates as well in other series. Um, one of our prior residents had done a, a pooled analysis um, uh, of the uh, RTOG um, studies looking at salvage cystectomy. And here you can see the disease-specific survival in patients who underwent salvage cystectomy. Um, and that um, uh, really, you can see it's very similar, the outcome and the, over, uh, the disease-specific survival outcome uh, in those who had a salvage cystectomy is similar to those who have uh, de novo invasive disease. So what about the morbidity of a salvage radical cystectomy? This is a question that people always ask uh, in those who've had trimodality therapy and chemo, chemo radiation. Uh, this is our experience, which was published uh, a little under 10 years ago, um, and we've recently updated, which I'll get to. Um, all patients uh, had cutaneous diversions. Um, three out of 
91 patients had did have a, a, a rectal injury. So that rate of intraoperectal injury, which we all worry about, is really quite low. Um, <clears throat> only one of those patients had a colostomy. Um, at 90, 90 days, there was a 69% risk of any complication and a 16% risk of a major complication. And when we compare that to uh, a large series uh, from, MS, from Memorial Sloan Kettering, you can see that the overall complication rate, again, 69% salvage cystectomy compared to the de novo uh, uh, cystectomy series, 64%, and then the major complication rate of 16% versus 13%. And it's not that different, but there's a, uh, maybe a slight difference there. Interestingly, when we look at those who went on to need an immediate cystectomy, in other words, uh, uh, they failed immediately, didn't, uh, didn't have a complete response, uh, um, they actually had a higher risk of a uh, cardiovascular or hematologic complications, and maybe that's the recent chemotherapy that they had, compared to those who then had a delayed cystectomy later on in follow-up, they actually ended up having a tissue healing, were likely to have a, a wound or an astomosis or stomach complications, um, and maybe uh, possibly because of the higher radiation dose that they ultimately received. We recently updated this experience uh, and compared patients who underwent a salvage cystectomy uh, post-TMT versus those that underwent a primary cystectomy uh, for muscle invasive disease uh, and had no history of radiation, and a third arm, those patients who had a cystectomy um, uh, after other, other pelvic uh, uh, radiation, whether it's prostate cancer or rectal cancer or other, um, there was no difference in intraoperative or early complications, um, but there was a um, higher risk of late complications, including infectious uh, GU and, and GI complications. And you can see that in the uh, Kaplan-Meier curve here with primary cystectomy in blue and then the salvage cystectomy uh, in red. Um, interestingly, in, uh, in terms of disease-specific survival, uh, there was no difference between the three groups, and overall survival, there was no difference between the three groups. So in summary for salvage cystectomy, we know that um, there's a slightly uh, higher complication rate, um, really minimally, I would say minimally higher. Um, therapy is, uh, salvage cystectomy is usually followed by ileal conduit or uh, continent uh, cutaneous reservoir. And a neobladder is not impossible, but it certainly has a higher risk of having uh, uh, urethroanastomotic stricture uh, and incontinence. So speaking of that, uh, I believe now we're going to be getting Back, I've lost slide control, and we'll get back to uh, Dr. Ostathew uh, to talk about quality of life uh, and biomarkers. Great. Uh, thank you, Adam. That was excellent. Um, and I'm just getting slide control here. There we go. All right. So we've, we've, so far addressed a lot of different aspects um, uh, surrounding trimodality therapy. And of course, you know, why spare the bladder unless it has some potential quality of life benefits, of course. And so that, that's what uh, we're gonna pivot to now and look at a little bit. Um, you know, in general, experiences suggest that trimodality therapy has acceptable toxicity and quality of life after bladder preservation is, is pretty good. The question is how often are serious things happening, such as hemorrhagic cystitis uh, or contracted bladders, you know, uh, causing very poor bladder function after radiation therapy or things like that. Um, and so, you know, what, what we can look at are some large trial experiences 
including uh, from the RTOG, uh, NRG Oncology, and also from the UK from trials such as BC 2001. And in general, if you look at um, you know, significant toxicity, grade three or higher, those rates are all under 10% and, and usually um, you know, low single digit range, as you can see here from uh, the NRG-RTOG trials and also from BC 2001, um, a mixture of you know, mostly, you know, it tends to be more GU, but also some uh, GI toxicity. But again, uh, it's thought to be relatively low rates and overall acceptable toxicity. Um, our colleague, Dr. Zeitman, had done uh, some, with, with urologic colleagues at MGH, had done uh, uh, urodynamic studies and quality of life studies. Um, uh, this is about 20 years ago, uh, suggesting that bladders, you know, 80% of the time were compliant with normal capacity and flow parameters. 85% of patients after chemoradiation had no or only occasional urgency issues. About a quarter of patients had occasional to moderate bowel control symptoms, and 50% of men had normal erectile function after chemoradiation. Uh, certainly, the way we design radiation and radiation technologies have changed drastically, and I do feel that bowel uh, issues and complications um, are less these days. Uh, the erectile side of things is, is, is interesting, and we'll get a little bit more to that uh, shortly as well. Uh, this here was uh, a study done by um, uh, the, the folks from, from Germany in Erlangen, and they asked uh, patients who'd gone through trimodality therapy, if you were to spend the rest of your life with your urinary condition the way it is now, how would you feel about that? Um, and as you can see here, about 90% uh, of patients were mostly satisfied to delighted. Um, and, and so urinary symptoms seem to be, uh, in general, okay for the majority of patients. Uh, in, in general, there's little data comparing quality of life between cystectomy and trimodality therapy. Again, that randomized trial, the SPARE trial closed early due to poor accrual. Um, and obviously both treatments can have effects. Uh, there are some cross-sectional studies, uh, such as this one from Sweden. Again, urinary function after radiation, 74% of patients had no or, or little urinary symptom distress, very similar to the MGH data that I just, uh, just showed. Um, uh, a little more bowel function issues uh, after radiation compared to cystectomy. Uh, but here again, the sexual function side of things, after radiation, 38 percent of patients had intercourse in the last month compared to only 13 percent after cystectomy. And study after study, I think, are pretty consistent that sexual function after chemoradiation tends to be better than after uh, cystectomy. Um, <clears throat> here's a systematic review of six quality of life studies. Um, and again, generally suggesting <clears throat> excuse me, that trimodality therapies associated with good general quality of life, satisfactory urinary function, and satisfactory sexual uh, 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 function, though there's likely more bowel symptoms than after cystectomy. In general, these are limited studies. Uh, we tried to uh, do a more detailed study, and we paired up with uh, the University of North Carolina and looked at longer-term quality of life in long-term survivors uh, after either chemoradiation or um, cystectomy. And this was a cross-sectional study. They had to be disease-free for at least two years. 
um, and the median follow-up was long. 63% uh, of the patients in this cohort had received a cystectomy. Most uh, had an ileal conduit, but about, you know, close to 20% had neobladders. Um, again, this is a bit of an older study. Uh, and 37% uh, of the patients had received trimodality therapy, of whom 9% required salvage cystectomy, which is very consistent with the contemporary rates of salvage cystectomy. Again, about 10%, 10 to 15% in the MGH contemporary data and in, the, in those other studies that Dr. Feldman showed you. Uh, we used six validated quality of life questionnaires, so a battery of questionnaires that were also bladder specific. Um, they're listed here. These are the, the instruments uh, that were used. Um, each instrument was scaled on a, a score of zero to 100. And in general, both cystectomy and trimodality therapy were associated with good long-term uh, quality of life outcomes. But uh, when compared to radical cystectomy, trimodality therapy seemed to be associated with modestly higher general quality of life scores. Similar urinary scores. Well, why isn't it better if you spare the bladder? Well, frankly, you might have some irritative symptoms after radiation-based therapy. And on the flip side, you know, patients tend to um, uh, accommodate and adapt to urinary diversions actually quite well and, and, and don't have those urinary uh, irritative bladder symptoms. So I guess if you think about it, not surprising. Um, markedly better sexual quality of life with TMT again. Again, study after study seeing that. Better informed decision-making, less concerns about appearance, less life interference from cancer or cancer treatment. So those were some significant findings that came out of this study um, uh, comparing trimodality therapy to, to uh, cystectomy. But again, all of these studies are limited, right? They're retrospective and limited in a number of ways. Because uh, unfortunately, again, we don't have a, a prospective uh, comparative randomized trial. Uh, decision analyses have been performed using Markov modeling, looking at quality adjusted life years. Again, suggesting that in general, um, there is, if you take, for example, a favorable TMT cohort, this is the small T2s that were completely resected, uh, et cetera, and comparing them to a favorable radical cystectomy uh, cohort, again, small T2s, um, there, there appears to be an incremental gain in qualities of about 1.6 years. Again, this is Again, limited data, it's only as good as the data that informs the model, of course, but you know, all consistent that there may be some quality uh, of life advantage uh, to trimodality therapy. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in the remaining time, uh, I'm gonna address biomarkers and the emergence of immunotherapy and what it means for trimodality therapy in some future directions. And once we wrap up this section, we're going to have plenty of time for some cases, questions, et cetera. So we've been addressing a lot of clinical pathologic factors so far uh, that impact decisions surrounding trimodality therapy. Some of them are, are listed here. Um, but the question is, can genomic factors inform bladder sparing therapy? What, what's up with biomarkers? And the hope uh, would be that um, there we go. Uh, the hope would be that we can move towards biomarker-driven management of muscle-invasive disease, that biomarkers are used in a multidisciplinary fashion for, uh, to help with clinical decision-making. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, are, are there some biomarkers that might help us choose which treatment a patient would be best served by? 
Are there liquid biopsy biomarkers that could be used for surveillance in follow-up? Uh, I am going to just pause here as I see from the chat that there is a question that's come in regarding, uh, is there any difference in quality of life outcomes between males and females? Phenomenal question, whoever has asked that. And actually we have a wonderful analysis led by Leslie Ballas um, from USC that is uh, a paper uh, that was just, just recently uh, accepted uh, or, or working its way through the journals. Um, that has looked exactly at this issue. And there may be some uh, differences in, uh, in terms of bowel function and sexual function uh, uh, between males and females. And, um, and, and so we look forward to the reporting uh, uh, of that study. So please do look out for that. Uh, so I'm gonna come back here to biomarker-driven management and, and the question, are there biomarkers we can use? What, what's going on in, in this world? And here is a table that uh, lists selected biomarkers that have been evaluated with bladder preservation therapy and their references. You can see they fall into the usual sort of categories, DNA repair genes, I mean, checkpoint markers, molecular signatures. Uh, and we're, we're gonna look a little bit more at, at some of these. For example, there's uh, uh, a protein called MRE11 that's part of the MRN complex involved in double strand break uh, DNA repair. And there was some suggestion from a UK group and uh, also from a Danish, uh, Denmark, uh, study from Denmark. Uh, and in these retrospective cohorts, MRE11 expression seemed to predict disease-specific survival in response to bladder preservation strategies, right, uh, here. High uh, MRE11 expression did better after radiation-based therapy, but not after surgery. Well, there is the inkling uh, of a possible predictive biomarker. Uh, we have looked at this in uh, NRG, RTOG studies, and certainly, again, this has not been comparative to cystectomy, but within chemoradiation series, MRE11 appears to be prognostic for disease-specific survival. So those that are high expressors, the blue line, fail less, okay, than those that are low expressors. So more work is needed uh, on MRE11 uh, as well. And of course, all of these biomarkers need prospective validation. Um, there's been some subtyping uh, as well of tumors. Uh, of course, you know, subtyping of tumors uh, by expression uh, profiling has been all, all the rage in bladder cancer. You know, very broadly, uh, uh, bladder cancers can be broken into basal subtypes or luminal subtypes. And there's been some suggestion that uh, subtyping predicts the benefit of hypoxia targeting therapy. In the UK, instead of concurrent chemotherapy, some studies have looked at concurrent carbogen and nicotinamide, which are hypoxia modifying uh, drugs. And look at this, very similar to the data uh, looking at neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, uh, before cystectomy, that there's a, there, the, there's a difference in the basal subtype, but not in the luminal subtype. Right. So again, um, uh, you know, you know, for example, with surgery, maybe you don't need neoadjuvant chemotherapy in luminal subtype tumors, but you definitely should be using them in basal subtype tumors. Uh, I'm not offering clinical advice here. I'm just saying how the bar biomarker field might be playing out. Similarly, it might affect choice of concurrent uh, therapy with radiation. Um, you know, we've looked at expression subtypes and we have identified them in muscle invasive bladder cohorts that are treated with trimodality uh, therapy as well. 
And, um, you know, there is lots of evidence that radiation can influence the immune microenvironment. And because of this complex relationship, um, in this study here, we, we decided to test whether the immune microenvironment affects radiation sensitivity. And one of the key changes, of course, is an increase in T cell in infiltration. And hence, uh, that's a signature uh, that we, we looked at. And what we saw was that immune infiltration signatures, such as that one, were associated with improved outcomes after trimodality therapy, but not after neoadjuvant chemotherapy and radical cystectomy. You can see the curves are flipped with the colors here. Um, and so this observation that an immune-activated subset of patients may have improved outcomes with trimodality therapy suggests that these patients may derive even greater benefit from the addition of things like immunotherapy, of course. So, you, you know, there's some real interesting work that's going on. And of course, there is a lot of data uh, that looks at the synergistic effects of combining immunotherapy uh, with radiation. Um, and, uh, you know, hint, hint for those questions, uh, you know, one of the questions that Dr. Feltman was showing at the beginning of the course, you know, there, there has been, um, you know, a, a transformative impact of immune checkpoint blockade in the treatment of advanced and metastatic disease, first line maintenance, second line uh, 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 bladder cancer in the, in the advanced metastatic settings. Um, but it's also become the focus uh, of numerous contemporary studies uh, in localized disease. And in fact, as, as everyone knows, it's been FDA approved, uh, PEMBRO has for BCG unresponsive high-risk non-muscle invasive disease with CIS. To date, uh, uh, to our knowledge, there's no FDA approval in the muscle invasive bladder cancer setting, but lots of trials going on perioperative and certainly also lots of trials looking at it with trimodality therapy chemoradiation. So um, hopefully more approvals uh, uh, to come if those studies uh, pan out. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, so coming back to um, uh, you know, uh, uh, this, this, this sort of uh, complex interplay between the immune system and radiation and the potential for a synergistic uh, uh, effect. Um, uh, you know, uh, they're, 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 this is a complicated uh, topic actually, because the interplay between radiation and the host anti-tumor immune response is multifactorial and heterogeneous. Uh, radiation can exert immune activating effects like listed here um, uh, via a variety of methods. Conversely, radiation also has immune suppressive effects. Uh, uh, and a number of those effects are, are, are listed there as well. So immune checkpoint blockade therapy, immunotherapy may actually provide an opportunity to tip this balance uh, by attenuating radiation-induced immunosuppressive effects while preserving radiation-induced immune activation and thus leading to a synergistic anti-tumor immune response. So that's kind of what goes behind this, but there's a very, very complicated uh, uh, relationship uh, uh, between radiation and the immune uh, environment. Certainly there's preclinical data as listed here showing synergistic effects when you add radiation 
with uh, uh, immunotherapy, you get a better effect with both than uh, either one alone. Uh, there's also uh, lots of interesting data looking at the impact uh, of timing of radiation immunotherapy. And in general, uh, a summary of that data would suggest that concurrent delivery of radiation with immunotherapy is better than sequential. Um, I, I would say in general, most of the studies uh, uh, would show that. And so, you know, the rationale for combining immunotherapy with con uh, concurrent chemoradiation seems to be pretty strong. Lots of preclinical data. It, radiation is upregulating the expression of PDL1 in tumor cells in a dose dependent fashion. Concurrent radiation and PD1 inhibitor shows augmented responses in mouse models. Combined chemotherapy and PD1 inhibitor is already approved treatment in other diseases such as lung cancer. Uh, and there's a host of trials that are going on looking at chemoradiation with immunotherapy in localized muscle invasive disease in the phase one, phase two, and phase three uh, uh, settings. And so, why don't we look at some of those? Uh, trials uh, uh, a little bit. Uh, here I've just, uh, you know, uh, 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 taken a slide from one of our medical oncology colleagues that shows some uh, select ongoing phase two trials. And there's one study that was recently uh, uh, reported um, at Astro called the Duart study. There's also um, the, the, uh, 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 this study here run out of NYU, um, and, and a few other centers looking at Pembro and gemcitabine and hyperfractionated radiation. I'm aware that this study will, re will report early preliminary findings at the upcoming ASCO meeting. So lots of these sort of phase two studies, phase one, phase two studies are starting to, to, to report. But if we look at one that's actually been presented, the, uh, the Duart study, um, Look at this, overall good response rates and good disease control rates when using concurrent and adjuvant durvalumab. And again, just to go back here, just to tell you what the patient population was, this was a cis-ineligible, unresectable, unfit for surgery, locally advanced or node positive. So this was advanced uh, uh, bad disease. And we, you know, good response rates, good disease control, um, yeah, also at one year. And there were overall clinically, sort of clinically significant immune-related adverse events were, were pretty minimal. And the GIGU grade three toxicity was under 5%, very consistent to what I was showing earlier in terms of the quality of life side of things. Um, so pivoting also to uh, phase three trials, there's this trial that we have uh, ongoing. It's a, a intergroup trial led by SWOG and NRG, 18, uh, 1806 study called the INTACT trial. It's a phase three randomized trial, muscle invasive N0 disease, 475 patients is the target accrual, and it's randomized to chemoradiation plus minus nine cycles of atezolizumab, okay, given both concurrently and adjuvantly. The trial uh, stratifies by chemo regimen. It allows its dealer's choice. You can do cysts alone, five of you mitomycin C and uh, low dose gemcitabine. You can choose, and that's just uh, following on all the data that Dr. Rick Lee showed you earlier. Uh, you can also choose the radiation field, meaning do you treat the pelvis or not, the pelvic nodes or not. I alluded to that uh, controversy and debate uh, you know, as to what to do. In general, we do treat pelvic nodes. Um, but not all practices do, and that's totally fine. And this trial is uh, permissive. 
uh, and pragmatic in that regard and allowing all that. In fact, when using immunotherapy, there is some uh, data that su suggests that if you treat the uh, pelvic lymph nodes, you may attenuate a little bit of the effect of the immunotherapy, uh, which could make sense. There's some uh, um, mouse model data that has actually looked at that. So this trial will more, uh, um, uh, more importantly inform that question in the clinical setting uh, in a phase three setting. Primary endpoint is a patient-centric endpoint of bladder intact, event-free survival. All of the events that uh, compose that endpoint are listed down here. And of course, a host of secondary endpoints that are obvious are being looked at. And there's a lot of translational medicine built into this trial. Um, this accrual is actually uh, slightly outdated in the sense that now we're at, at over 150 patients uh, on the trial. And I, I can tell you that this past month uh, um, uh, of April, we approved 13 patients. So we're, we're, you know, and this is through, of course, COVID, you know, so we're, this trial is doing well. And for a bladder sparing trial, it's doing awesome. Most trials uh, in the bladder sparing space in the past have been on the order of 70 to 90 patients. So one that's going for 475 patients and accruing 10 or more patients a month uh, is certainly doing well and suggests that bladder preservation has gained uh, more acceptance and utilization nationally. Uh, we did report at GU-ASCO uh, the safety toxicity update on the first 73 patients from this trial. And I can tell you that there was no grade three or higher colitis in the Atizo uh, arm. Um, uh, and that overall 23 patients experience grade three or higher toxicity events on the TESO arm versus 11 on the non-TESO arm. But the most common toxicity was what you would expect, hematological, okay, anemia, lymphopenia, et cetera. None of the grade three or higher toxicities were considered to be specifically immune related. So I think you're just seeing in this with the Duarte study and other studies suggesting that the combination of immunotherapy with chemoradiation is safe. And, and now we need to see what, what some of the efficacy data is going to show over time. Uh, there are other phase three studies. This study started about a year after the INTECH trial and is very similar in design. It's just using PEMBRO instead of a TESO, uh, uh, pretty much. Um, it, it, it also, uh, uh, if, if I recall, may allow for moderate hyperfractionated uh, uh, radiation. Uh, then there is the CCTGBL13 study, which is being run in Canada, that is using adjuvant dervalumab. It is not giving it concurrently, uh, although I suggested there is some preclinical data suggesting concurrent administration uh, 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 may be best. We don't know that for sure. And so this is another phase three trial looking at the adjuvant delivery of immunotherapy. So when we have all of these studies, the INTACT trial, the, the Keynote 992 trial, uh, and, and, and the CCTG trial, we're gonna have a lot of phase three data to inform all kinds of nuanced questions. Uh, there's also the INSPIRE study, which is a, a partnership between ECOG, Akron, and NRG, which is a phase two trial of chemoradiation plus minus map in stage three disease, so node positive disease, okay? So there's also a trial in that setting. If you haven't opened these studies, please consider doing so. Lastly, I just want to say that, you know, there, a word of caution is needed. 
Um, there are some studies, for example, this was a phase one study from the UK called the PLUM study that suggested some dose limiting toxicities when combining pembrolizumab with hyperfractionated radiation. Uh, in this case, the, the hyperfractionation was a little more ultra hyperfractionated, it was six gray once a week for six weeks. So uh, 36 gray over six weeks, but six gray in individual fractions. And there was in fact a grade four bowel perforation so just a word of caution of incorporating immunotherapy, um, you know, and, and why all of that safety data is really important coming out of the large phase three trials. There was also this study here uh, recently from Canada just reported um, in the red journal suggesting again, dose limiting toxicities with a T-zone trimodality therapy when you're doing it moderately hyperfractionated radiation. Moderately hyperfractionated radiation would be that 55 gray in 20 fractions. That would be a typical moderately hyperfractionated regimen. And in this phase one study, again, there was sort of uh, um, you know dose limiting toxicities that were GI related, colitis related. It's for that reason in the intact randomized phase three trial that we don't allow moderately hyperfractionated radiation, we're sticking to conventionally uh, fractionated therapy. So in summary, um, in 2021, patients should be offered trimodality therapy with muscle invasive disease because many are not getting curative treatment nationally. There's an undertreated and underserved population. It's being supported by numerous guidelines as Dr. Feldman showed you, it is a category one recommendation for NCCN. Um, in clinically matched patients, survival is comparable to, randomized, uh, to radical suspecting in the modern era. Remember that Toronto data uh, that I showed you? 85% um, of contemporary patients keep their own bladder these days, 85 to 90% probably, and long-term quality of life is good and maybe better than a cystectomy in a, in a, in a, in a, in a large number of the, these patients. Trimodality therapy is not a non-surgical treatment. Dr. Feldman has highlighted that beautifully. A maximal TRBT is an elegant procedure and operation and a salvage cystectomy, uh, which is gonna be needed in 10 to 15% of these patients. Those are really important components uh, of a successful TMT program. There are lots of opportunities to continue to improve the delivery of radiation. Uh, I alluded to image guidance, dose escalation, hyperfractionation, field design, and to optimize systemic concurrent neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapies that Dr. Lee got into beautifully, including possibly the addition of immunotherapy. Some of the trials I just went over uh, are looking at to, to further improve outcomes. There's preclinical rationale for combining radiation immunotherapy and bladder cancer and some clinical evidence in advanced disease and ongoing trials, of course, looking at the role of incorporating IO into TMT and we saw those studies. And the results of these trials have the potential to alter the treatment paradigm for TMT and planned correlative studies may provide really some novel mechanistic insight into the determinants of immunotherapy response and how that uh, interacts with radiation. And the validation of some of the biomarkers that I discussed in independent cohorts and in pr prospective trials is absolutely necessary. Prospective validation is needed to further guide bladder preservation therapy for muscle invasive disease and for personalized treatment selection. And we need to continue to advocate for multidisciplinary engagement. It's so wonderful. Uh, you know, doctors uh, uh, um, uh, Feldman and Lee, we've worked up uh, over a dozen years together, uh, 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 you know, with, in a Friday clinic where we see a lot of these patients. 
and we work hand in hand. The patients are seen concurrently by all three disciplines. Uh, uh, we, we really advocate that approach for muscle invasive bladder cancer patients. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it's safeguarding the autonomy of these patients. Informed decision-making by the patient is key as they are presented valid options and the pros and cons. And so with that, we all thank, uh, you know, um, a lot of folks uh, uh, that are listed on this, these slides and many more that are not. Uh, bladder cancer requires multidisciplinary teamwork. We're very fortunate at MGH to have a wonderful big team, but that extends nationally to many other centers and groups. And so we are very grateful for that. And um, with that, I wanna thank again, the AUA for the opportunity for us to run this course. I'm gonna hand it back to our course leader, Dr. Feldman to, to address questions and case discussion. Great, thanks Jason and thanks Rick for uh, really wonderful presentations. Uh, we will go forward with talking about some case discussions and I'll just say to the audience, please uh, put some any questions in the chat. Uh, we'll be able to see them as they come in and you know can address them uh, again as they as they come in. So. Um, you know, in no way, please wait until we're done with these case discussions. Uh, we, we're going to wrap up uh, for the post-test questions by uh, 4.45. So, uh, so please just send your questions. There we are. Uh, so case one of a localized bladder cancer is a 62-year-old healthy male. First occurrence of bladder cancer, he had clinical T2 high-grade urothelial carcinoma of the bladder was a single four centimeter tumor on the left posterior wall. Um, he had a complete TUR, according to the local urologist, uh, no mass uh, on uh, EA, uh, on examiner anesthesia, no hydrophoresis, no adenopathy, um, and he had a, a good renal function. So this is his uh, CT scan. I think you can see my, uh, my mouse. Uh, just uh, uh, demonstrates a nice image of the tumor and the bladder. Uh, and this is the tumor cystoscopically and then an image post TUR. So here we have a nice uh, histologic image. You can see the bands of uh, smooth muscle, uh, the tumor uh, uh, invading, uh, uh, just de demonstrating that this was muscle invasive disease and actually had some squamous cell features. So is this a candidate for bladder preservation and what strategy? So we can talk a little bit about uh, tumor anatomy uh, and you know that we talked about the uh, tumor sort of characteristics and the patient characteristics. Uh, and so and, you know, is this a patient uh, who is a candidate for bladder preservation? And um, I'll start and comment and, and, and often, you know, really it starts with with the urologist. We're the ones who are, you know, seeing these patients, doing the resection, seeing the tumor in the bladder, uh, really assessing uh, and then bringing them to, you know, the multidisciplinary clinic. Um, and I'm always assessing a patient um, uh, who, you know, to see, is this a possibility? And so if we think about, you know, what he has, uh, it's, a, it's a resectable tumor. There's no hydronephrosis. Uh, there, um, you know, is not extensive associated CIS, uh, really, from a tumor standpoint, he is a good candidate. From a, a patient standpoint, uh, also uh, a good candidate. And so um, I think what I'll, I'll ask my colleagues, um, what the strategy would be. 
Yeah, I, I can quickly comment, Adam, if you go back a couple of slides, um, maybe one more. Yeah, Th this is kind of an ideal, right? This would fall into the ideal candidate for bladder preservation. It's a tumor where uh, a complete TR has, uh, a complete TRBT has been performed. This is a really favorable location for radiation therapy, by the way. You don't see any small bowel in the field here, right? On this, well, it's a single axial slice, but there isn't. So we can deliver you know, our tumor boost doses uh, well here. Because bowel, you know, small bowel in the field draping over the bladder is often one of the limiting factors in, in radiation field design. So it's sort of ideal that way. If you go to the next slide, um, you know, uh, it, it, yeah, okay, it's, it's urothelial carcinoma. It has some squamous cell features, but we saw the data earlier. That right. doesn't preclude TMT. And in fact, these patients do just as well as the pure urothelial patients, right? And then the other factors of the case, good bladder function, good renal function, you know, this is the ideal candidate. And so yeah. I would argue, you know, um, you know, Dr. Feldman's performed the, uh, the complete TRBT. This should be chemo radiation. Uh, radiation is going to go, uh, you know, to full dose. Um, and I generally, you know, in most cases would treat, you know, limited pelvic fetal, uh, nodal field as well. Um, and, and, and Dr. Lee, uh, uh, maybe can now comment on, uh, his choice of, of systemic therapy. Yeah. We'd often wind up using something like 5-FU, uh, and mitomycin C, uh, for patients like this, especially if we're using definitive radiation, daily radiation, which I think would be very reasonable here. Unless for some reason we we opted to go with twice daily radiation, this is a, this is certainly a patient um, where he's healthy enough to to uh, tolerate a cystectomy as well. It seems so. Um, you know, if we ever needed a backup plan, we could also think about that twice daily radiation with the induction therapy and and uh, consolidation treatment. One of the yeah. things I'll, I'll just comment on is that um, as Dr. Staffy has described it, we've been in clinic together for presume uh, pre pre pandemic for. Uh, 13 years uh, in multidisciplinary clinics, seeing patients together all at once. And that allows us to really review the imaging and the, the experience uh, that Dr. Feldman has in the, in the OR to, to really come together on, on, um, on co-managing these patients. It's of great value. Yeah. And I might comment um, uh, just to go back. I'm going to go back a little bit because, and I'm going to say a little bit of um, what if, so uh, let me see if I can get back. And I'm having a little difficulty controlling the slides right now. But anyway, uh, so yeah, so we see that the patient had been referred from outside. And according to the local urologist, it was a complete resection. My first step here, before we even get to the multidisciplinary clinic, if he, that's not where he presented to, my first step is to say, we need to do a re-resection, okay? We need to really look in, assess, you know, make sure there's not associated CIS. I always do systematic biopsies, uh, you know, or what some people may call a random biopsy of what looks, what mucosa looks normal. Make sure there's not, you know, occult carcinoma in situ. Um, always make sure there's really been, you know, you've got to make sure that you've got local control. Um, 
The other question then is, what if you look in and, you know, just to get to this image, what if you look in and you can, I think you can see my mouse and you see that there's the tumor here, but you also see there's a small little, little you know, what looks like a non-invasive uh, satellite lesion. Does that exclude that patient from, from uh, TMT? No, it does not. So you handle that, you handle that cystoscopically, you ablate the tumor. Uh, that does not exclude the patient from, uh, uh, as long as there's not extensive disease. So I think that's a really important point, those caveats. So with that, just uh, let's go through to the second case. Okay, case two. Um, if we got to any of it, it, just to summarize, it's an 84-year-old frail female. Uh, she's got multiple comorbidities. She's got clinical T3 disease, uh, 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 mild left hydro, no pelvic mass, uh, visibly complete TUR, uh, was able to be done with deep fat invasion. There was no adenopathy. She has severe lower urinary tract symptoms, hematuria with clots, incontinence, and um, uh, 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 um, uh, reduced renal function. So, uh, Rick, do you want to just quickly to comment on chemotherapy for this woman? Yeah, sure. So she's complicated for any of the treatments that we're we would be pondering for her uh, for her significant bladder cancer. Her GFR really precludes the use the safe use of cisplatin-based chemotherapy. So if she were a a cystectomy candidate. I do not believe I would be giving her neoadjuvant chemotherapy because of her GFR. If she were uh, a chemoradiation candidate, and she certainly has features that might argue uh, against that, um, or but also for it, given her age and comorbidities, um, I think that we do certainly have chemo regimens that we can consider even with her, with her GFR, such as twice weekly uh, gemcitabine or even weekly paclitaxel. Jason, any comments? Yeah, Adam, if you can go back uh, one slide just so everybody can see the details here. I mean, this case has been set up to be a sort of poor surgical candidate type pa uh, patient, 84 years old, uh, frail, lots of comorbidities, and they actually had a complete uh, TURBT, you know, so it's setting up to be more favorable for, um, you know, a, a less invasive approach. Uh, uh, such as chemoradiation, more favorable for that than a cystectomy. That being said, what stands out and what needs for further evaluation is the severe LUTs. The patient has a lot of urinary symptoms, has incontinence. And my question would be, was that tumor related? Is that improving since the complete TURBT or not? Is that longstanding? Because, you know, one of the, the, the tenets of bladder preservation is, that bladder preservation, uh, you know, it, it, well, the question you have to ask is, is the bladder worth sparing? And uh, in some cases, it may not be due to poor bladder function. And I think we need to get more to that. And sometimes, you know, patients that, that, that have very poor bladder function, they're not going to be well served by chemoradiation. Sometimes they are better served by a radical cystectomy and a urinary diversion, and they'll have a better urinary, urinary quality of life in the long term. And so, I think we need a, a little more information about that. And, and I, I would flip it back to you, uh, Adam, as to, you know, what about a radical cystectomy in octogenarians? Yeah, I mean, and I'll just comment. That's exactly what happened with this patient. She really had very poor bladder function. And, and, and as you nicely stated, what are we sparing? What, what bladder are we saving? And, so, and, and how does that affect her quality of life? So, so she actually did have a cystectomy. 
did very well. Um, and yeah, we know that there's, um, we know that we have a personal experience, but also support in the literature for doing, uh, you know, surgery, radical cystectomy in octogenarians. Um, the majority of them do well. Uh, there is a, probably a slightly higher risk of complication with patients in a, with advanced age, but really they can do very well. So they should not be excluded uh, just due to their age. So we'll get to the next case. 55-year-old healthy male, uh, clinical T3 node positive, uh, TCC with small cell features, pelvic adenopathy, uh, uh, RP adenopathy, um, and normal renal function. And these uh, images really just, you know, demonstrate the small cell uh, and the positive uh, FNA of the node. And here you can see that the patient had extensive local disease uh, on imaging. Uh, so um, maybe we'll just shoot it to Dr. Lee to comment again about uh, uh, what he, how we should uh, start with this patient. Yeah, so although, you know, we, as Dr. Staff has described that, you know, variant histologies can certainly be candidates for trimodality therapy. For, in this case, a small cell uh, cancer and the extent of the disease are really driving my, uh, my thoughts on management. In this case, I, I would be thinking about neoadjuvant cisplatin and etoposide chemotherapy, which is useful for small cell disease in hopes of giving four cycles and seeing a significant response uh, in both tumor and lymph nodes. How then to think about uh, consolidative management, whether that's surgery or radiation, I don't think that there is any standard uh, at this point, um, but I think either approach could be very reasonable if uh, this patient's had a significant response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And I'll turn it over to Jason to think about his thoughts on radiation. Yeah, thanks, Rick. Uh, totally agree. Neoadjuvant systemic therapy needs to be front and center in this in this type of situation, and is is, is part of the backbone for for treatment. Uh, Adam, if you can flip back again a, a, a slide just so that everybody can see again, you know this was extensive uh, uh, a tumor in the bladder. I mean, just extensive, right? And this is a young, healthy patient. My bias in this situation. Uh, if they've had a good response to chemotherapy is a radical cystectomy, okay, given the tumor burden intravesically um, and the ability to do a thorough um, uh, lymph node dissection that ideally would be therapeutic for this individual, uh, for this patient. Uh, that being said, if they've had a phenomenal response to the chemotherapy and have had a complete response and there's no tumor in the bladder and the bladder is functioning well and the patient refuses a radical cystectomy or is strongly adverse to, to it, um, I certainly think the chemo radiation would remain an alternative option uh, for this patient and, and could be considered. And as Dr. Lee nicely alluded to, there's no strong data telling us in small cell whether surgery is better than radiation or vice versa. But again, in a young, otherwise healthy patient, I, would, I personally would be biased towards uh, surgery. And I would comment as we you know, had a question on the next slide about uh, extent of lymphadenectomy, you know, do a radical cystectomy and would do an extended uh, lymph node dissection, you know, going up uh, in this young, healthy person, you know, especially with pelvic adenopathy going up to the uh, bifurcation. So to go to question four, um, 67 year old man uh, who wishes to preserve his bladder uh, had clinical T2 
uh, bladder cancer of the right posterior wall, complete resection was achieved, had received uh, uh, gem cyst times four cycles and had a complete response um, and, and had a negative CT. And then actually had a restaging TUR and a TUR of the scar, um, uh, post-chemo um, uh, radiation uh, had no evidence of any residual disease. And, and here you can see the resection. But um, so, um, can this patient be safely observed and not undergo cystectomy or radiation? What's the risk? Should he receive any additional chemotherapy? What's the likelihood of bladder recurrence? How are bladder relapses treated? And what's the likelihood of needing a salvage cystectomy and a salvage uh, therapy successful for invasive recurrence in the bladder? So, uh, Jason, do you want to uh, attack this one? Yeah, I, I, again, I think especially with the uh, rise in the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy before surgery um, nationally, this is a situation we're seeing more and more. The chemotherapy can be very effective and can lead to complete responses. There can be no residual disease in the bladder. However, I would argue that that does not preclude further local therapy. Um, we, we know that these patients remain at high risk of recurrence, high risk of future, uh, you know, salvage cystectomy and further therapy. And so I would argue that the standard of care would be to still follow this with local therapy. Now, should the local therapy be a cystectomy or should it be chemoradiation? Uh, there, I think you can go either way. And perhaps some patients that have had complete responses to neoadjuvant chemotherapy may be more inclined to be interested in keeping their bladder that has no residual disease on repeat TUR, right? And so these are patients that I think should certainly be offered chemo radiation as well. But I don't think we can preclude uh, further local therapy of some sort for these patients. That being said, it is being investigated nationally in trials in genetically favorable bladder tumor situations, the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy alone. Um, and, and, but I would argue again, that is very much on a trial situation and generally in genetically favorable situations. There are some other institutional cohorts, Dr. Feldman had referred to these in the earlier discussion as well that have been looking at this, but I, I, would, I would strongly advise that that is done only in trial uh, sort of situations and that standard therapy would include further local therapy of some sort. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I, and I think, you know, when you do an aggressive TUR in some of these patients, you might see microscopic disease. And in fact, actually, you know, when you see clinical T0 disease and you see it, um, you know, and, and then you, in the cystectomy specimen, you sometimes will see microscopic disease. So the surface doesn't always tell you the whole picture. I think that's really important to, uh, to, to know. Uh, I think we're ready to wrap up and I want to thank um, the AUA uh, and for you know, supporting our course. I want to thank uh, my uh, colleagues and friends, uh, uh, Dr. Ostathew and Dr. Lee. Um, pleasure to uh, work with both of you uh, on this course and appreciate all the time uh, everyone has given to it. And really thank you to uh, all of the uh, staff uh, on the AUA, uh, including uh, Barbara and Aaron uh, and, and Sarah. Uh, thank you really for helping us to run an excellent course. So with that, uh, if there's any other, don't believe we have anything else to address, um, thank you very much. And thank you to, thanks to the audience for logging on and participating.